I took a very short maternity leave. The morning I was going back to work, I was a mess. And my husband said, bye, love you. Don't talk about the baby. Like, you are this badass executive. Don't talk about the baby. And, like, I I think about that so much now. And I am, like, radically focused on how do we, as an employer like honor the other commitments that people Mm -hmm. have in their lives and how do we in appropriate ways like let people bring their full selves to work from abc it's no limits i'm rebecca jarvis and each week we're talking to the most bold and influential women playing at the top of their game trying to demystify success and what it really takes to get there and all the trade-offs Whether you're looking for answers or you just want to hear a good story, you're in the right place. On today's episode, the woman behind the business of the New York Times, as Chief Operating Officer Meredith Copet-Levian has helped take the gray lady to unprecedented heights. In this episode, we cover everything from the days that led up to and followed Jody Cantor and Megan Toohey's game-changing story revealing decades of sexual harassment allegations against Harvey Weinstein, to whether the Times might someday accept payments in Bitcoin, to Meredith's own path becoming the company's first COO in more than a decade. Meredith Copet-Levian, welcome to No Limits. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here. I'm thrilled to have you. I'm thrilled to hear your voice. Your voice is outstanding. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. You're the executive vice president and chief operating officer of the New York Times, the first COO in over a decade. I I think so. You know, I hadn't processed that. I feel very lucky to be there. I feel particularly lucky to be there in this moment. And you're the person, really, who's figured it out. I mean, you and your team are the ones who have figured out the model that makes money in that business. I I would I want to clarify. I am not the person. Um, The New York Times, I think, as well as anyone has has figured out the necessity of expeditious digital transformation. I think we've figured out that um, news is a relationship business and we are on a journey to being a world-class consumer brand. Um, But it's, you know, the collective of a lot of leaders at the Times and the family, um, the Sulzberger family, that um, has figured it out. So not just me and my team. But it's an important distinction because – For so many years, people just assumed that you needed to give it away for free, that if someone was going to click on your articles online, there's no way people would be willing to spend any money. And the New York Times, that collective wisdom that you are a part of and a part your job is really charged with figuring that component out, has figured out how to get people to pay for it. Yeah, I I always say you can describe the business model Um, Not the journalism, not the mission, but the business model of The New York Times in five words, make something worth paying for. And, you know, if you had a sentence when most of the alternatives are free. And I think this year in particular, I think The Times has had, you know, century and a half of proving that it does that. And I think about the year 2017, October 5th. 2017, the day Jody Cantor and Megan Toohey published their piece on Harvey Weinstein I really think the world changed that day. And when I when I read the piece at first, I had no idea. And I think they've said this in interviews as well. They had no idea what the response would be. What did you think when you read their article with 
all of these allegations of sexual harassment against Harvey Weinstein, somebody who for so many years had completely controlled an industry and many people's livelihoods and careers. I thought the world would never be the same again. And it seemed like the beginning of something that's going to take, I have to say, years to sort out. Um, I think it it is one of the most profound moments of journalism playing an extraordinarily important role in the world that we've seen um, in a long, long time. And it, to me, against the backdrop of what the rest of the year has been about, um, makes it even more interesting. Uh, a few days after the piece came out, I was getting into an elevator and I hadn't seen Jody or Megan. I know Jody a little bit. I barely know Megan. I hadn't seen them um, since it had come out. And the elevator doors, they, they were getting out um, of the elevator and I was getting into it and the elevator doors swung open and literally my like my I had this like physical re- I threw my arms around them like I didn't know <laughs> they're heroes. what else to do they are they are heroes um, inside the building I think they're heroes around the world I was telling the story this morning that um, a couple um, a few days after the story came out um, two colleagues and I two colleagues who senior colleagues at the times who happened to be women Rebecca Blumenstein our deputy managing editor and Lisa Howard who is one of the leaders in our ad business and I went to Asia. And we did a multi-city tour of Asia, and we were joined in Asia by three other women, our Beijing bureau chief, our head of our Chinese language website, and one of our, our leading commercial people there. So it was like six women you know, moving across Asia on behalf of the New York Times in this moment. Um, that in and of itself was kind of a stunning and amazing thing to us. It felt that way. But Everywhere we went, you know, Tokyo, Seoul, uh, Beijing, um, Shenzhen, and and so forth, everyone was talking about Harvey Weinstein. It was was amazing. Like, you just got the sense of how big a story this was and continues to be. When it comes to your story, I want to look a little bit more deeply at the work specifically that you do. You grew up in Virginia? I did. Richmond, Virginia. Richmond, Virginia. I always say is a conversation stopper. It's a small town. <laughs> well, Nobody knows producer, anyone from there. My producer, Taylor Dunn, went to UVA. Oh, so, so did I. And I know yes. you went to UVA as well. Yes. So that's not a conversation stopper that here. Not, that's like yeah, a big good, starter good, here. Good. So and when you were at UVA, you didn't study anything that would necessarily indicate the path that you ended up on. Well, that's that's, that's sort of true. I um, <laughs> There was no, you couldn't be, I, I basically am a lifelong lover of journalism, the craft of journalism, the idea of reporting, the role journalism plays in the world. I was like on my middle school newspaper. I mean, I, I like, love that. I think like if, if there had been a newspaper in elementary school, I would have been on it. Do you I, remember what the newspaper was called? Um I think it was like Wingspan. I, I went to Bird <laughs> Middle School. I think that might have been the name of the yearbook. But like I like I've been um, I remember my parents on it. So I, I grew up in Richmond, Virginia, which was this great place to grow up. Great town. I feel very lucky to have grown up there. My parents were New Yorkers. They were from Riverdale in the Bronx. And so occasionally we would have the New York Times in the house. Um, I grew up in a, um, I grew up reading the Richmond Times Dispatch and the Richmond News Leader. Um, but occasionally we'd have the Times in the house. Um, and occasionally we'd have New York Magazine in the house because we went to New York to visit family pretty regularly. And I was just obsessed with both of those brands as a as a little girl. 
And I was obsessed with the Richmond Times-Dispatch and the Richmond Newsleader. And I remember being, it must have been in late elementary school or early middle school, like going to the newspaper and like hearing from reporters. And I, I just, I was interested in that my entire life. Um, and, and I was always a, a reader. I was always a, a sort of a nerd for anything that was about kind of civics and society and how society functioned together. So um, I went to college and I went to UVA because it was, you know, the best school in my state. And it's where I, I feel so lucky. In state tuition. Yeah, it was where I could afford to go. I feel so lucky that I grew up in that town and that state and could get in there. I'm sure I would not have gotten in had I not been from there. But the there there was no journalism program. So if if you kind of were interested in journalism, which I was, you would go work on the paper. And I did. I worked on the Cavalier Daily, which was a great independently run college daily, an excellent, excellent daily, super formative to me and sort of seeing how all that worked. And I became a rhetoric major. That That's sort of what you did. Um, and I minored in history. So it was sort of everybody advised me like, you have to actually have context for understanding the world. Sure. If you want to do this and the best thing you can do if you want to be a journalist um, or you want to work in journalism is to have knowledge, to have context to understand what has happened before. So so that's really where I I um, focused. Rhetoric then, also sounds like, I didn't mean to cut you off, but rhetoric also sounds like something if you were pursuing law. Did you ever think about Many, many pre-law students also were rhetoric majors. Um, I didn't think about that. I'm married to an attorney. My child's name is Justice. I'm married to Oh, a, that's so cool. Law. He doesn't practice as an attorney, but he went to law school and he he loves the law. Uh, we named our child Justice, but no, but no, that I I didn't. Um, much to his chagrin, that is not um, was not in, <laughs> in the things that I thought about doing. And and I will say, I I graduated and didn't go into journalism. I graduated. I um, needed to make money. Like I was in the exact same boat. Yeah, so. I was. I realized if I go into journalism right away, I have all these student loans. Yeah. I will never come out from under them. Yeah. So I chose finance as my initial path. Right. I, I, I didn't quite make um, as as good a decision economically. Um, but I ended up in my first job was actually a writing job, but it wasn't in journalism. It was at a, um, a company called the Advisory Board, which was like a consulting firm. Um, and so I like got off that path, but only because of necessity, only because I, as you said, I needed to earn a living and my parents were convinced, number one, I wouldn't, I would never be able to do that in New York as a journalist. Mm-hmm. And number two, that I should go out in the work world first, like journalism sort of not being the work sure. world. Well, I think that's actually, I think that's good advice because my mom's a journalist. My grandfather yeah. was a journalist yes. and they both said to me, look, I mean, my mom is, she covers personal finance. So yep. she always said to me, remember those student loans, you do have to start paying them right away. Okay. But she also, and I do think this is good, whether or not there are student loans or finances are a question. Learning a practice totally and seeing it from the inside allows you to be a better journalist. You yeah. understand the, the wool can't be pulled over your eyes as much when you've seen it on the other side. I think that's right. I th- look, I think it's like people telling me study history. And, you know, you have to have context for the world. And to be clear, I've not. So I was a college journalist. I've not practiced in my professional life as a journalist. I now I have spent a career. I've spent the last 15 years of my career doing commercial work in support of journalism. And now 
Um, I get to, you know, play this role in the digital transformation of what I think is the most important institution of journalism in our society. And it is so gratifying to do that. Um, So gratifying to have spent um, all these years so far in my career and hopefully those that come after um, supporting this work that I think is so foundational to society. I was going to ask you. Because you didn't end up yeah. doing the journalism path in the traditional sense. Yeah, I didn't. Did you ever think I should be doing this? Did you ever think I wish I could or I regret the choices? I'll, I'll say two things about that. I have no regrets. Um, regrets about lots of other stuff, but not that. Um, the it, I, I I had a moment uh, right when I was, I think, turning 30 where I thought, I don't want to like I, I, I don't love what I'm doing in business. And so I thought about going um, to journalism school and going back to it. And I wrote um, a mentor of mine, David Bradley, who is the owner of The Atlantic, um, and said, can I come talk to you? And he had he had like recently acquired The Atlantic. And I went down to talk to him and he he basically said, just come work here. Like this is close to journal. Like come work here for a year. If you don't like it, I'll help you go do your next thing. And that was sort of it. I went to be literally to be an ad salesperson at the Atlantic 15, 16 years ago. And for me, the rest feels like history. Like I just, just getting to be around it was so satisfying. I, you know, my first year at the Atlantic, you know, it was Michael Kelly, who um, was the editor at the time. Incredible. Such a stunning loss to journalism. When he passed away, Cullen Murphy, Jim Fallows, I mean, just getting to be in in the orbit of those folks was so satisfying to me. And knowing that the work that I was doing supported many other people getting to engage um, with the craft they were making. I mean, that I loved it. So my career kind of took off from there. You know, you mentioned those early relationships in your career and how important having those types of that network was to you finding the right spot. How did you develop that network initially? What what are some concrete things that you did that allowed you to make real relationships and not just the kind where you say hi to somebody and then hope that they'll respond to your email in the future? That's such a good question. Um, Doesn't get asked enough. I'll, I'll say two things about that. One is I have been exceedingly lucky um, in who my bosses were. So I was just saying this to somebody earlier today. Um, and, and I think early in your career, it is simply luck. As you get older, um, some of it is who you choose to work for and, and where you direct your effort. But number one, I was exceedingly lucky in just working for people who really cared for me and cared about what I was interested in, cared about what I wanted to do. Um, and and that helped. And those people are still very much in my network. Um, David Bradley is still very much in my network. The My original mentor, Elizabeth Keffer, who essentially ran the commercial side of Atlantic for many years, is someone who is still a dear, dear friend of mine. So that's one. Two, um, I was so deeply interested in the journalism, in the craft of journalism, in making the world more interested in journalism. I think probably early in my career, people people who were journalists saw that. They're drawn to you. You're not just that. the bean counter that they might be accustomed to in that role. Yeah. I mean, like I've just been I've like I said, I've spent a lifetime wanting society to have a shared fact base and and being deeply interested in the manner in which that happens. 
And like, you can't fake that. And I think just being in the orbit of people like Jim Fallows or Michael Kelly or Colin Murphy, I think um, just people like that recognized early on, like I was in it for the mission. And I think, look, I've been at the Times for four and a half years. Um, I was at Atlantic Media for a long time before that. And I was at Forbes for five and a half years in the middle. And the through line has been um, I, I... really believe in the mission and I see my job as getting as many people in the world as possible to believe and buy into that mission first um, sort of buy into the mission spiritually and now literally buy into the mission by paying for journalism well frankly it's very hard to sell something if you don't believe in that thing so but it's interesting you use the word a couple of times being in the orbit which i love i love this idea that you know when you you choose people in your life your friends uh your partner in life the people that you work with you're in their orbit how have you thought through career choices and differentiated between the very people whose orbit that you will be in versus the company and that mission Yeah, such a good question. David Bradley taught me the importance of looking at the people around you and saying, does this kind of represent my ambition set, my intellectual interests, uh, my value system? So I learned very early on that who you surround yourself with, even more important in some ways than your boss. Like, do I look Mm -hmm. around and do I see people who seem to want to work in the way that I work and and be on that path? So I think that's been a really um, important part of my career. We had um, the company I worked for that David Bradley owned before The Atlantic had a very strong value system. There were these two values that um, they always talked about, the force of ideas and the spirit of generosity. And the notion was you you had to be an intellectually curious person who was capable of sort of um, getting to original insight um, on your own or, or with others. And two, you had to have a servant's heart. You had to actually be in it to serve. And I was lucky enough to be at a company that had this really strong value system when I was 22. I've been looking for those two things for the rest of my career, and I've been looking for people who behave that way, who seem to share those values. And the older I got and the more I had people working for me, the more I looked for people working for me who represented those values. I know there's no such thing as typical. It's such a cliche. But what is a typical day like in your life, and what are the focus points of your job? Yeah. Um, So the CEO of the New York Times, Mark Thompson, who I've now worked um, with and for for four and a half years and who is a terrific sponsor and mentor and boss and leader of the Times, he would say my job is COO, which I've now been in for half a year. Um, feels like much longer. <laughs> um, but it's been he, a long half he, a year. Yes, it's been a long half a year. It's been an important half year for me um, and for news, um, two different things. He would say my job is to make the digital transformation um, from a commercial standpoint and a product standpoint happen faster at the times. And that has meant I've spent the last six months, I've spent most of my sort of day job hours, my hours at the times, um, remarkably inside the building, um, in meetings. Um, I am together with people all day long, um, working on 
how do we coordinate across everything that we do at the New York Times, which is technology and data and product development and design and marketing and advertising, everything else we do. And oh, by the way, the journalism, how do we coordinate across all of that to advance um, this notion of making journalism worth paying for, making journalism so differentiated, so high quality that from a commercial standpoint, against a backdrop of many, many free alternatives, millions of people will pay for it. So so I spend all day long um, working with people to coordinate our ability to do that. And a lot of my time is spent um, on talent. So getting the right talent in place. What do you like as a boss? What am I like or what do I like? Well, sure. <laughs> Let's start with what you are like and then what you look for in um, people when you're hiring. Oh, that's that's such a great question. On the on the what I look for in, in people goes back to the two things I learned when I was 22, which is kind of um, is this someone who is curious enough that they can do original insight and that they can do that collaboratively um, uh, or on their own. Um, but in any case, they, they have to be able to collaborate and are they here to serve and do they have the gift set um, that the organization needs um, to be of service at that moment. So easier question to answer. What am <laughs> I like? I would say I, I have a voracious interest in where media consumption is going and how original, independent, quality journalism fits into that and, oh, by the way, should drive that. And I have a voracious interest in how to make many, many, many more people in the world interested in that, conscious of that and aware of that. And I think the people on my team would say that. So, you know, voracious interest in the task at hand. High expectations. Um, Yeah, I definitely have high expectations. I can tell you I talk too much. I keep saying my New Year's resolution of 2018 um, as a boss will be to shut up and listen more. (laughs) It has to be frustrating at times, however, where you think, okay, the answer is so clear cut. Here's the perfect design. Let's all just fall in line and follow this perfect design. Yes, I am working very hard (laughs) to resist that. I I think everybody feels that way, by the way, whether they're literally in the position that you are where you can essentially set it doesn't necessarily mean people are going to follow it or they're people who are following something that was preordained for them in an organization and they're like this doesn't make any sense yeah. why do we have to do it the inefficient way yeah uh, look i'll say it a, a different way um when you you know i i i came up through the work so there are parts of the business advertising now even marketing brand that i feel like i know intimately I've yeah ne- i've never led a product organization i've never been a designer um, you know, there there are lots of I've, I've, I have a new products and ventures team. I've not personally done BD, so um, really like learning how to lead from a seat in the balcony. You know, there there were moments in my career where leadership meant being the director of the show. So like sending the sending the cast out and making sure it all went well. And then there were moments in my career where maybe I had a front row seat to the show, but I wasn't like backstage directing everybody. I'm now in a moment of my career where I am learning in many ways to sit in the balcony where you have this great and very different perspective. You can see things that, you know, the the leaders of the functional areas or the cross-functional work can't see. And your job, my job is to like call that and say, hey, based on what I see 
are you thinking about this? Are you thinking about this? But it's a very different exercise to lead from the balcony than it is to do it from the front row or even backstage. Is the New York Times ever going to accept Bitcoin as a oh, form of payment? Oh, such a good question. I'm not going to answer that. You'll have to You'll have to find out. <laughs> okay. Well, I'm, you're not saying no. So perhaps... You know, look, I, I think Bitcoin is such an... I mean, bit, I, I'm even more interested right now in just the story of, of Bitcoin. Yes. I'm super interested in business journalism. We've got a huge push to reimagine our own business journalism, invest in business journalism. The Bitcoin story to me is is like one of the most exciting stories about how technology is changing everything on the planet. Yes. Um, but we've got one or two things to do on our pay <laughs> model before we get to taking Bitcoin. Well, I'm I'm really fascinated by Bitcoin and just like even the history of it with oh Satoshi God. Nakamoto, yeah. this founder who you know, we don't know if it's a he or a she or a group of people who was on the scene in 2009 and completely disappeared in 2011. And then you have all these people who are millionaires, but are they really millionaires from Bitcoin? So um, that it's rich. It is. It is. There's a lot there. When you look back on everything, you were to go back 10, 20 years ago in your career and give yourself one piece of advice. What would it be? I think I'm still giving myself this piece of advice. Um, I have just been in a hurry. Like I, you know, I was born early. <laughs> I like I. How I'm early a, were you born? Not just like not not so a, a little bit. But you were in a rush. Um, but like I'm in a rush, <laughs> and like I just need to slow down. And I I wish I had moved more slowly and thoughtfully through particular passages. And that's another thing. You know, I'm I'm like really interested in millennials and how they meditate and they've like made meditation cool like i I think one of the things that that generation versus mine um is doing so much better is just like mindfulness and thoughtfulness i um so i i would have liked to slow down through some of the passages and honestly like enjoyed them more yes taken more from them like i i I've not been great. Like, I love my work, but like loving it and enjoying it are two very different things. And I've like, I I missed out a lot, certainly pre 40 on the enjoying because and I wasn't even I wouldn't even tell you like it's that I was so ambitious and I was trying to get the next job. It was more just just that like, I don't know that I had the um, that I could move slowly through things enough to um, to take the joy from them that was there for the taking. And I'm I'm working on that now. And I'm also working on how do I create the conditions for the people on my team to do that so that they want to be there for the long haul and doing this work for the long haul. Well said. That reminds me of Carolyn Everson from Facebook. Yes, and I were talking I know about. Well. She was here. Um, another great uh, conversation here on No Limits. And she talked about the idea of Facebook having to make sure that there's value in your work, that that it's not just about whatever the goals are, uh, the objectives of the organization, but individuals have to feel like they're being fulfilled by this as well. Do you meditate? I don't, okay. but I, I will <laughs> learn it, yeah. to. I'll That's tell you what I do. I don't meditate. Yeah. I, ha- I, I haven't made that an official resolution. I'm going to work <laughs> on the just talking less first. They're probably related. I do, though. I'll tell you something I do now that I didn't used to do. 
um, the only time I am alone. And by the way, that's like a gift in my life that I get to be surrounded by amazing people all day, including my family. But that the only time I'm alone is very early in the morning. So in my old age, in my mid late forties, I'm now waking up very early. My husband like can't quite get over it. What is very early? You know, like some days I get up at five or five thirty. Yeah, for early. me, that's very early. That's early. I didn't, I didn't used to be that person. It's hard for some to believe I, I could be that person now. <laughs> and I like go down. We have this like very comfortable spot in our dining room. There's like a very comfy couch in it, and I sit there like in my PJs and I do my think work then and I catch up on my reading and if there's anything I have to do that like really requires thought um, so and and some mindfulness for the work I do that and so I have this like space for myself pre let's call it 730 when my little boy wakes up um, and and I take that space now I didn't used to do that and I sort of sort it out um, I've got to have that or I'm just like not grounded enough during the day. So that that's become really important to me to just like be able to, you know, be anyone's mom or boss or partner or or servant, you know, work for someone. I like if I don't have that space to myself at the beginning of the day, I, I can't make it for other people. Your point earlier about being in a rush really resonates with me and this idea of enjoying the yeah. moments and enjoying the journey and not you made an interesting point. Like it wasn't just about ambition or wanting more, but there is this feeling that if there is a success, then you have to make the most of that success. And if you don't make the most of that success, then you're wasting something Totally. and not enjoying that and not saying that was really cool. And this is a fun thing. And instead just being like, okay, what's next? Like, what can we do more? What can I use on the back of this success to do the next thing? I'll say for me, it, it, it really came less from a place of ambition. I probably look ruthlessly ambitious from the outside. Like, I don't, I, I'm not, I, it, it comes from much worse place. I think ambition is like a productive thing. For me, it came from just a place of fear. So, you know, fear, um, you know, I mentioned that when I was a little girl, my, there was a moment where my dad lost his job and like that made an indelible impression on me. And I think like, and in the end, it all worked out for him and he had a great life and an amazing family and did work that he really believed in. But um, from very early on, I had this fear, like, will I be able to be in control of wanting to do the work that I want to do and wanting to have the impact that I want to have and um, being able to provide for myself and my family? Like those things, like very early were things that I was worried about. Um, so I would say like, like I hurried a lot and I worried a lot. Um, and I'm working very hard on both of those things to not do either. And I would say the only thing I give myself that like I worry a lot about my child. I think everything else like doesn't deserve the worry that I probably gave it early on. I'm a very neurotic person, so I yeah. can get on board with the hurry and the yeah, worry. Yeah. What along the way is the toughest lesson for you? Oh, well, I it, it's funny. I um someone someone asked me like what's the worst piece of advice um, yeah you've got not i mean yeah. to me they're that's like that's my the favorite same, question the yeah, worst advice this will so i want to i want to set this up by saying my husband um is like the best coach that i have professionally he's like he himself 
we're so different in who we are in the professional world. And I admire him a lot. And he just, he just is, he is like unbelievably brave. And I've learned a lot from that. But he actually gave me what came to be the worst piece of advice I've gotten. And also, um, the, the one that I'm like trying to get past, like the thing I'm still trying to get past. And I, I, I tell the story a lot. Um, I, I took a very short maternity leave. Um, and when I was going back to work, I was the publisher of Forbes at the time, I, the morning I, I took like five weeks of leave and the, the morning I was going back to work, I was a mess. And on my, literally on my way out the door, my husband said, Bye, love you. Don't talk about the baby. <laughs> oh, I was wow. like, "What?" And he was like, "Don't talk about the baby. Nobody like because because like they're not going to take you seriously yeah, as an exactly. executive. Like you are this badass executive. Don't talk about the baby." And like I, I think about that so much now. That that was only I look. I'm six and a half year old. That was only six and a half years ago. But I am so focused now on what it means for women and men who work, yeah. who are parents and spouses and kids of aging parents and or even who are single people, but who have obligations to other things. And I am like radically focused on how do we as an employer, like honor the other commitments that people mm-hmm. have in their lives and how do we in appropriate ways, like let people bring their full selves to work. And yeah. I'm I'm pretty obsessed with that. I don't think I did a very good job of that. Um, it's a hard lesson. I think that was your original question. Like, I don't think I was very good at that in my 30s. So I was a boss for a lot of my 30s. And, you know, I was a boss who outworked everyone. And so by doing that, I probably made people around me. I probably still make people around me feel like, you know, you've got to like put in the time and it's really about putting in the service and putting in the original insight. And those things don't necessarily have to be in hours. And it's really about bringing your whole self to work because people are most comfortable when they aren't trying to compensate for something they really aren't. And so that whole like, don't talk about the baby. You know what? I'm thinking about my baby, six and a half. I still think it's baby. I'm thinking about him all the time. I'm also thinking about the New York Times all the time and how to get more people to care about serious journalism. And like, that's okay. I think that's a great point. Yeah, I think about the world has very dramatically changed. Also, when I started um, 15, 20 years ago working, my mom would have given me the exact same advice. I wasn't pregnant or having a baby at the time, but it was like, don't talk about your personal life. Do not bring your personal life to work. Don't integrate it, especially as a female. I worked in, in business in the beginning and it was really frowned upon at that time. And I think the world has come a long way, but there are clearly still industries where that doesn't exist. Totally. Jobs where it is not a bring your whole self to work mentality. Um, But I also think that the world has changed so dramatically because it really is so much more 24 seven. You know, we all have our iPhone or whatever it is that keeps us connected to the job. Therefore it is much more integrated for many employees into their full life. Completely. Like I, you know, I made a series of choices about where I live, where my son goes to school. Like I live, I work and my son goes to school within a 25 (laughs) block radius. 
so that I can, you know, so he can. You maximize so it. Like it's, it's like those are my life. That's a big life hack for me. But yeah. like that's, you know, how do you find? And like, by the way, it's a privilege I get to do that. Like not everybody has that option. Not everybody can live close to where they work. Not a, So so I, I'm spending in my, again, at this moment in my career and as CEO of the New York Times, I, I will say like, I probably haven't always been a leader who's created a work environment where people can feel that way, where they can particularly around just like putting in the time and so forth. And I'm working really hard now um, for us as a company and just for my own like impact on the world to make it a space where all different kinds of people, parents, children of aging parents, um, men, women, um, people who have other interests and, and people who are different can feel like I can bring my whole self and therefore I can be more productive when you need service or original insight from me. Before we go, I've been personally thinking a lot about the sexual harassment conversation. Yeah. And every day we read a story about someone else, so many brave people have come forward and shared their stories. Where do you think it goes from here? And what do you think will be the most productive outcome that this conversation has ignited? I I think the the really important thing this conversation has ignited is to say that there are a set of behaviors that are that go that sometimes go with power when power goes wrong that are utterly unacceptable um, and that need to be like drummed out of the workplace and frankly drummed out of society. Mm-hmm. So that is is just like so apparent and clear to me. I, I think there is a whole other set of conversations around um, talent and inclusion and the relationship between people in work and men and women in the workplace and, you know, inclusion is a broad topic. It's not just about men and women. It is also about why are there so few people of color in leadership positions in large companies and how do we fix that? And I think to the extent that um, we have broken open a very new place in the dialogue here, I'm really excited about that. I also worry that um, that we we don't become so um, that that people don't become afraid to talk about it. I was in right. a conversation yeah. this morning um, where I look. I think I think men have to be a part of this conversation, yes. and I think um, there's a lot of fear around that, and I understand that. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things I find myself saying is. Um, we have to treat everybody fairly and, you know, fairness means people can speak their minds mm-hmm. and we, we have to create a forum for that. So I'm very interested. I think the Times has done a, a very good job of mm-hmm. that. Very interested in our continuing to do that. I'm very interested in the leaders I work with and myself creating a forum for productive dialogue on our teams because look, um, you know, society multicultural there are men there are women there are um, white people there are people of color there are introverts and extroverts i mean one of my big learnings is you know i'm an extreme extrovert like (laughs) as i got older in business i i realized i'd probably like cut off a whole group of people who were introverts who had like all this value to add yeah i I, i'm an enfp like an off the charts one and like you know what like the last three four big important awesome hires I've made are extreme introverts and like I we need that so like you need 
to surround yourself with people who are different from you to yeah. be effective. That is what stretches us. By the way, that produces better products. That produces better journalism. So I am super interested in this moment in the world being one in which that conversation becomes more, not less productive. Mm-hmm. I agree. And I also think sort of to your point, and I'm not sure whether it's the New York Times or it's somehow in the public dom- domain, my wish is that we can have a conversation where people test ideas and that we give each other space to say something out loud that we can reconsider. Like, you know, respect. Right. if everybody comes to the table with respect and the ideal is that the best outcome for everybody, equality, more leadership for women, more leadership for uh, underrepresented minorities in all of these different roles. But I do agree that there has to be the ability to have a conversation and for people to say things out loud and hear an alternative standpoint, much like I think about college. You know, I loved college because you could have these conversations totally. and test an idea and say, Actually, you know what? Now that you've said this thing, I actually that's a great point of view. And I agree with that great point of view. And I have my my thinking has been challenged. And now we're all stronger for it. That's right. And I look if you look at the current political climate, um, if you look at what has happened in I don't think this is the case at the times, but in in to a lot of news, um, we are living in a time and in a society where people are interested in what they're interested in yeah and not all people but there there is high interest in like feed me more of what i already believe and i'm scared about that mm-hmm. on this topic because i do think we need to push each other and an inclusive workplace is one that has many more women in leadership many more people of color in leadership but also men and, yes and i think men have to be part of the conversation and we have to give them the space to be. You you piqued my interest on one last final topic, which is clearly social media has fed into this idea that we live in bubbles and we choose reinforcing ideas. Many of the much of the time we choose sources that reinforce our personal notions. I know you're not on the editorial side, but how does the New York Times think about that? And what do you think the New York Times responsibility is in forcing people to look outside of that bubble and challenging them to think potentially outside of what they already do. Oh, yeah. So, I mean, we think about this and talk about this all day, every day. Look, I believe that, and I think the New York Times believes that um, journalism should provide a place for intelligent, thoughtful dialogue from all perspectives in the comments section um, i'm kidding, <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> look i think i, I always like the comments i always say like if you want to understand new york times readers read the comments they're pretty darn intelligent but i mean look we've got a, a robust opinion section and we do quite a bit of um, opinion writing online and that is some of um, that is a lot of what people come to us for and i we really see ourselves as a place for intelligent debate you know we hired columnist from the journal named brett stevens um Mm -hmm. gosh now like a year ago and you know the people were not quiet about their views of the times hiring somebody with a pretty different um viewpoint from some of the other folks you would see regularly in our opinion pages and we did it in a moment in the world where i think a lot of the public expected us to go the other way like a moment you know we we are not 
We are not the opposition to the current administration. We are not an advocacy organization. We are a place for intelligent ideas and debate of all kinds. And you're going to see us continue to push in that way. Meredith Copet levian thank you so much for joining us on No Limits. It's such a privilege to be here. Thanks for having me. And now it's time for our No Limits Entrepreneur of the Week, where we feature one of our listeners who's building something of her own. And our No Limits Entrepreneur this week is Jill Gwaltney, the founder of Roxa, which is the largest women-owned advertising agency in America. She was nominated by Matthew Agronin. Jill is based in Laguna Beach, California, where she lives with her husband. She's a graduate of Stanford University, and prior to founding Roxa, she spent two decades in the printing industry. During that time, Jill worked with her father at a direct mail printing company called FEC. She eventually worked her way up from account executive to president where she was responsible for increasing the company's revenue from 5 to $46 million before they sold FEC to a public company. After selling, Jill thought she might retire. But after trying it out, she realized that retirement just wasn't for her. And she says her family agreed. So she started Roxa as an independent direct marketing firm, thinking it would be a part-time hobby. The idea was born from a problem she noticed during her years in the print industry. She says she would often see pieces that looked good on a computer screen, but didn't necessarily transfer well to a printed finished product. So Roxa was started to focus on smarter creative and production of printed market pieces, and it quickly became much more than just her part-time hobby. The firm has since evolved into a full-service agency that applies data, technology, and content to bring results for brands like Verizon, TGI Fridays, and Alaska Airlines. So how did she get the company off the ground? Jill had funds from selling her printing business, which let her start Roxa initially. Her business plan focused on the needs of potential clients and how she would generate revenue. She said an early lesson from her father was, have a plan, understand the numbers, and make money where you are. If she could give herself advice at the start, Jill says that when making an acquisition, make sure to thoroughly understand not just the business you're acquiring, but also the culture and the leadership philosophies. Congratulations to Jill Gwaltney. I wish you and Roxa continued success, and thank you to Matthew for the great nomination. Remember, if you or someone you know should be featured on No Limits as an Entrepreneur of the Week, send your nomination to me here at No Limits with RJ Podcast at gmail.com. I love hearing from all of you. I love reading your emails, hearing your stories, so please keep it coming. Also, if you like what you heard here, don't forget to subscribe. Leave us a review. It means so much. It's so helpful to spread the word. This is how people find out about No Limits, our podcast. As always, you can find me on Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, Twitter, and LinkedIn at Rebecca Jarvis. Don't forget to use our hashtag No Limits. And before we go, a final shout out to the team here that helps make this happen week after week. My producer, Taylor Dunn, our editor, Michelle Bancardo, our research assistant, Annie Osakwe, and the rest of the team here at ABC Radio, Elizabeth Russo, David Rind, Josh Cohan, Andrew Kelp, and Steve Jones. Big thanks. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts.